Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, hanging out with Travis Irvine. Hello, Ben. Hey, Travis and Fernando. Hey, I'm recording over here. Oh, my God, Travis. Fernando is in New York, and he has changed forever. Fernando, what happened? Hey, you know you come here, you got a host. I'm, I'm wow. sorry. Terrible. Wow. Terrible. Terrible. Wow. Don't action. tell Pizza Rat that you talk like that. I am proud of you, really, Fernando. You are... You are Really letting your artistic wings <laughs> unfurl right in front of her eyes. The talent is unbelievable. Speaking of talent, we have a great conversation for the majority of today's episode with an independent journalist. His name is Ford Fisher. This story or his stories are absolutely fascinating. Uh, highly recommend listening. I know that you will because you're all fantastic. He has a website called news2share.com. It's an independent journalist website. He was there on January 6th. He was there in Charlottesville. He's an independent journalist and we have so much respect for him because mm -hmm. like every great documentarian, the kid stays out of the picture. He yes. keeps himself <laughs> off camera and he documents reality and uh, he is just such a fantastic uh, reminder how amazing citizen journalism can be when done well. So Ford Fisher, stick around for that conversation. The only thing I really want to talk about up front, obviously, uh, Julius Jones, that's in Oklahoma. We talked about this man. Mm -hmm. He's currently on death row. Mm -hmm. The parole and commission board in Oklahoma has said that they want to commute the sentence. However, Governor Stitt, Governor Stitt has yet to do that. November 1st is his next hearing. So hopefully Julius Jones, a man who has an alibi, the Innocence Project is working with him um, for the murder of a uh, of a man in 1999. Hopefully uh, some justice can happen in that case, because as we know, the U.S. justice system, dare I say again, as I always say, injustice system, whoa, mm. so brave, so brave, gets it wrong. And in this case, it's very possible, probable that they did so please go support uh, Julius Jones and uh, reach out to Governor Stitt and help save a freaking life because I don't trust the state of Oklahoma to get this right. Okay, well, before we get to this conversation, let's talk about what's going on in Virginia. This election is going to be this Tuesday. If you're in Virginia, I would assume that you know that's happening because it mm -hmm. seems like <laughs> the conversation is everywhere. Glenn Youngkin has now taken an eight-point lead over Terry McAuliffe. This would be a massive upset. Terry McAuliffe, of course, a former governor. This is according, now take it with a grain of salt. 
This is according to a Fox News survey. Right. So they say that McAuliffe is uh, down by eight percentage points. However, there are polls of polls that are showing a steady uptick for support of Yunkin. And most polls now have Yunkin up by one to two percentage points, which is a huge deal, again, considering how much he was down to begin this race, how, much, how many points he was down by to begin this race with Terry McAuliffe having massive name recognition and massive amounts of money in the state of Virginia. And I think one of the cases, and it's really sad. So this, this story is just sad. So just everyone knows that the story that happened in Loudoun County is really playing a big role in this uh, governor race, in this gubernatorial race. Have you guys heard about this at all? No, I've been watching all the um, the the polls tighten, and I know yeah. Youngkin's people are kind of on the fence of whether or not they want Trump to weigh in or not. But this Loudoun County story sounds like it could just be a local game changer. I think it's getting national news now. So in Loudoun County, there were some indications that this might have something to do with uh, uh, the story is red meat for a lot of people. Um, basically, the long story short, extremely sad. There's a 14 year old. Uh, there was a girl. She was raped by a 14-year-old male student, and uh, he was. this was at the Stonebridge High School in Ashburn. Now, apparently, the school board didn't do anything about it. They just got the kid out of there, and they sent him to Broad Run High School, where he allegedly assaulted another female student. Now, there was some controversy over, was this person transgender? Was this person not transgender? All of this stuff, and I, I'm not weighing into any of that. We'll just look at the facts of what happened. So the school board cover-up, as obviously we're seeing now, school board meetings, they're they're just so, it's again, it's sad what's happening in this country right now. But this is one of those stories that is really resonating with a lot of people who uh, feel as if their voices aren't being heard in the school board meetings. And of course, when it comes to the sexual assault and rape of two teenage girls, obviously that's going to pull on the heartstrings. And the fact that there was a school board cover-up in Loudoun County and evidently McAuliffe's campaign, McAuliffe knew that this issue was occurring and didn't didn't discuss it. Youngkin's campaign kind of took uh, took it on as a as an issue, and he speaks on it when he when he stumps. I think that this is a really big, I think it's a really big micro story that turned into a macro story, and it couldn't have happened at a worse time for the McAuliffe campaign. Sure. Well, and you couple that with what's happening a few miles away um, in D.C. with the fact that Joe Biden and the Democrats couldn't get a deal done before Election Day, certainly not before the weekend yes. um, on the infrastructure uh, slash reconciliation uh, bills. Um, and I know McAuliffe was really really hoping that they would get something figured out before election day. Cause at that point, like you said, Ben, you know, you can have Obama show up, you can have Biden show up. Mm -hmm. McAuliffe has had both of them, but it's going to be issues like that, a local issue that Yunkin can, can glean on. Mm -hmm, and also mm -hmm. the fact that people can look to DC and be like, well, we don't know if the Democrats are really getting it done for us anyway. Absolutely. So uh, students in Loudoun County, Virginia, this past Tuesday, they had a walkout. Uh, they protested, obviously, sexual assaults in the public school system. And also, doesn't this sort of activate some of the more conspiratorial minded? You know, we talk mm -hmm. about systemic yes. sexual abuse and those things happen. You know, look at Boys Town. Look at I mean, it happens. And for this now to be something that Youngkin can kind of grip onto 
as someone who wasn't previously in power, as opposed to McAuliffe, this reflects poorly on everybody in power. I think it's really been a political and it's disgusting because everything in a political season is is used for political reason. And it's just really sad. Again, this, these two victims, you know, they, they're just sort of now being used as political pawns and treated with disrespect. And the victims that were raped by this person, uh, they deserve dignity and they deserve respect and they shouldn't be used as political football Um but anyway, so that was just one of the stories I wanted to bring into into mind, um, because I think that is one of the reasons we're seeing the polls shift in a uh, in a way for Yunkin on a emotional, social level. And then, of course, as Travis said, we have, you know, the we have the pipeline problems. We got where's where's all the gas? Do any gas pumps work in this country? <laughs> um, so anyway, this is according to uh, the teen's father. This is the victim's father, Scott Smith. Um he was arrested, I believe, when talking about uh, the assault at a, at a town hall. He said, I did not I, I did not intend to speak and I did not sign up to speak in the meeting, yeah, but I was very concerned about what the school board was considering, especially as it pertains to the safety of not only my daughter, but also the children of other parents as well. Uh, and I believe this plays into uh, certain transgender issues and well, rights here. So, yeah, go on, Fernando. A really important detail about this uh, school board meeting, apparently, is that okay. the school board itself was denying any allegations, and Smith was in the audience. The father of the victim was in the audience okay. and stood up and goes, no, my daughter was a victim of the assault. What do you mean there hasn't been any incidents in the you know right. in our district? So wow. just imagine sitting there, you know, in front of your school board and them saying, oh, we don't have a problem. When your daughter comes home and, like, we have a problem. It's just Absolutely. wild to me, wild to me. Yes. And uh, anyway, so again, we we all know on this show and, and people can oftentimes take one example and extrapolate it to blame a whole. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that we saw. And again, I don't actually know because it seems like it's an ever speaking of fluid. It's an ever moving story when it comes to this perpetrator here. But right. then there was, of course, a lot of people using this case as a reason to say, see, we can't have, uh, you know, transgender people using the bathroom that they identify as and all of that bullshit. And none of that has anything to do with what we're actually talking Absolutely about here. Nothing. But you know what I'm talking about? Right. Like, that's exactly. how these things get, they just get milled together. And it, it really is, it is sad. This is according to Mr. Smith. Again, the, the father, he says, I don't care if he's homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, trans, uh, transgender, he's a sexual predator. And I do, I agree with that quote. I agree with that statement. And, yeah. and so that is, again, but... The extrapolation of the larger conversation of like the bathroom situation. I can't believe all of this is around toilets. But anyway, it's American politics, so I guess it has to be. So then you also have people saying, see, this is why we can't have people of their identified sex in, in the proper bathrooms. We can't have it. So anyway, I just I have to remember I, I try to whenever I fall into the fallacy of thinking like that, I have to remember that that is how racism works. Absolutely. And that is how prejudice works, that you can't one person does not does not contain a multitude of of everyone. One person isn't a token for a whole class of people. Just because I as a as a Latino or as a gay man make a mistake does not mean all Latinos or all gay yes. men will make these kinds of mistakes. Absolutely. Right. This is according to Amanda Marcotte. Uh, she wrote this as the verdict came out. Um, this is what she had to say. She says, surprised people aren't talking about the verdict in this Loudoun County case and how testimony undercuts the right wing's narrative about what went down. She goes on to say, turns out it was a dating violence story, not a trans bathroom story. 
as portrayed. However, of mm, course, uh, right. Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin has alleged the school district engaged in, quote, a cover up, which it does look as if that is possible. And uh, this is what Terry McAuliffe says. He says, we don't have time to be wasted on these phony trumped up culture wars, this fake outrage, the right wing media's pedals to juice their ratings. I just don't think that McAuliffe's I don't think that that was the right response for McAuliffe. I mean, I just think we have a violent sexual assault and it's just you know what I'm saying? Right. Well, and if I may, I mean, this is our last show before our local election day. You know, local elections are in swing, but this is just how important school boards are this year. I mean, there are more people running for school boards across the country this year than ever before. And a lot of them are first time candidates and, and it goes to, you know, the mask mandates, vaccine mandates, but here's a school board issue that you're talking about that is now going to influence a governor's race. Absolutely. It's just very important to, um, to get involved locally at get involved locally. And please God, people with, with, you know, good, cool, moderate minds, you know, when it comes yeah. to this, you know, as this investigation goes on in Loudoun County, if it, it does come out that it was a full on cover up, fuck every single member of that school mm-hmm. board, they should all be gone. But right. if you don't run, it's going to be the people who are motivated and that you might have a mega school board. Do you want that too? Right. Right. You right, know, right. so be so be active and and if this does end up as as gross as it can be with the systemic issues of of uh of covering up a sexual assault then everyone needs to go and we saw it i mean we mentioned larry nasser that was that was known man i mean this stuff went all the way up to the most powerful people in the ncaa and through the olympic committees there was email exchanges about it and and so anyway so that story to me just judging by what i've seen and what i've heard is one of the reasons that youngkin's campaign is is uh is going above McAuliffe, which again would be a huge upset and who knows what the hell it means for 2022. Um, all right. Well, any other thoughts, guys? Yes. The the McAuliffe race and the New Jersey governor's race, um, both odd uh, election years. Although it looks like the New Jersey dude is going to win it, right? Right. It, New the Jersey's pr- pretty solidly blue. Again, there's just the fact that in an odd election year that you have two governor's races, it's it's a little um, uh, unique. Yeah. Um, but again, like we've mentioned on the show before, it is the precursor. So Yunkin's victory. And again, Trump is doing this weird thing where he's I guess he's going to phone into a rally in favor of Yunkin. But Yunkin's people don't necessarily want that right now. Dude, I watched a really interesting little documentary on uh, on him, maybe on PBS. And yeah, Yunkin is playing a interesting political game because when he got Trump's endorsement, he was like, Thank you. Don't thank you. you. Because again, you need the MAGA coalition if you're going to win, especially if you want to unseat or not. uh, If you want to defeat a well-established Democrat in a state like Virginia, which, of course, Biden won. Exactly. So this is a precursor to 2022. So like you said, we just got to stay tuned. Yeah. All right. Also, I want to make one little note. Uh, I just offhandedly mentioned um, in Nevada, in Reno, you can carry a gun. You can conceal and carry a gun, but you can't have a whip. That's right. No whips, but you can have guns. All right. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Okay, everyone, enjoy this conversation with Ford Fisher. Uh, I think it's fascinating, and uh, I think we can you, you can learn a lot. If you are an independent journalist out there, he has a set of such strict standards. I wish that corporate media would have the same, but <laughs> they can't because they have to sell ads for uh, pop chips, which I like. Mm. Okay, everyone, enjoy this conversation with Ford. All right, everyone. Now it is time for our conversation with Ford Fisher. He is an independent journalist. He was there January 6th. He was also there in Charlottesville. But no, he's not a total maniac. He was recording what happened. So we better know what the hell is going on in our democracy. Ford, thank you so much for being here, man. Yeah, thank you for having me on. That was quite the intro. So, Ford, I want to start talking. Thank you. I want to talk first, just the macro. You're an independent journalist. We watch four hours at the Capitol. If you haven't seen it yet, watch it. It makes your skin freaking crawl. It is nerve wracking to say the least. It's on HBO. Highly recommend it. Watch four hours at the Capitol. And I know, Ford, you have a, a little bit of footage from outside the Capitol from that day. But how important is it when it comes to figuring out what the hell is going on in this whitewashed corporate media era? How important is independent journalism and what are your personal perspectives on the need for people to um, record what is actually happening without all the bullshit political spin that comes later? For sure. So I run News to Share, and basically the point of my kind of company, my platform, is that I try to cover activism of all political stripes. So, you know, highlights of that have included, like you said, Charlottesville and January 6th were some very, you know, kind of country-shaking uh, events. But, you know, I filmed things as small as union pickets as well, right? So, right. you know, all manners of political activism sort of shaping our uh, country. Um, and that also leads us to understand the roads that we take to get to those individual moments, right? January 6th didn't just happen out of nowhere. Charlottesville mm -hmm. didn't just happen mm. out of nowhere. There's a lot of events that go into those things. And often it's actually more peaceful events that then foment the kind of uh, anger, the movements, whatever, that build the numbers that turn into these giant things. So I think it's really important that we not just see these kind of, you know, on the other hand, the mainstream media, um, just showing us the, okay, like this thing just happened. Trump supporters stormed the Capitol or Charlottesville happened. Lots of people, uh, you know, got hurt. Uh, three people died, right? There's context, right? So my mm -hmm. uh, point, the point of kind of my journey in independent journalism is that when possible, I try to live stream events beginning to end so that you have the context of literally every shot as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And the point of that is that the public can see that work. So when I live stream an event, I then do put out summary videos that are cut down to what I believe are kind of highlights that people should see. But as opposed to the mainstream media where you might have, you know, a cut down thing of, you know, 20 shots that are 10 seconds each. And that show, that's their summary. And they're, right. you know, showing that next to Anderson Cooper talking about an event that he didn't eyewitness himself. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in my opinion, by having raw footage that my audience can see the context for, it's sort of a self-accountability, right? Mm. So some people will criticize or some people do criticize me on the basis of, you know, if you film 
um, people saying things that they find disfavorable, that uh, perhaps you're um, exacerbating their message. The the term that's sometimes used for this is like the idea that it's platforming them in some way. Mm. And I do disagree with that, right? I think that I film events that would happen whether I'm there or not, right? So like if CNN invites Richard Spencer onto CNN, and this has happened, to talk about his perspective, that's, I think, actually giving him a platform, Richard right. Spencer being one of the organizers of uh, the Charlottesville rally. Um, yes. Whereas if I film Richard Spencer saying something in public, I think that I'm documenting it uh, for accountability and for history's sake. He'd be saying the thing, whether or not I documented him saying do you it. Think, do you think we're living in an era of kill the messenger? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that there can sometimes be a tendency, especially with independent journalists for whom it's their own platform, to try to confer the uh, co- the content on or the values of the people covered in the content onto the journalists themselves. So mm-hmm, I am mm-hmm. frequently accused by people on the left of being on the right or accused by people on the right of being on the left because mm-hmm. I generally am pretty non-confrontational in my documentation of either side. Um, the reality is I really try to approach these situations trying to have as much of kind of a fly on the wall uh, perspective as possible, right? The comparison right. I would use is um, if you guys played uh, Mario 64, do you of remember course. that game? So there's a there's a character in Mario 64 that nobody Thanks really thinks about. Thanks for getting the note, by the way, to mention Mario. <laughs> getting the memo? So, yeah. We always have to mention Mario one time an episode. Are you serious? Is this actually? No, that's not true. That's, okay, I was going to say, like, is that actually a thing? Um, okay, so in Mario 64, your play it's a third person perspective and for the most part you actually don't control the camera right you're not mm-hmm. seeing through the eyes of mario you're seeing through kind of just a, a third person over mario's shoulder from kind of above but there's something interesting which is that when you look in the mirror like when literally you're standing next to a mirror if your perspective like the spot that that camera angle that you're playing from is visible in the mirror it's actually rendered as this little like character in a cloud with a camera Right. A little lacuti. Um, it's a lacuti with a cloud, a, right? Right. Oh. So, <laughs> so this camera really represents, like that camera in the game, rep- sort of represents this idea that although the the camera itself, the perspective in itself, in a way, is a character, you're really not supposed to think about it. It actually right. works best if you're not thinking about. Um, the person filming it, right? So in my perfect world, people wouldn't really think about me or what I'm thinking as I shoot something, right? The the philosophy right. of it is that I want the work to speak for itself and I want it to be um, material that then people can use secondarily to criticize or to make a point that they are trying to make, right? So in history class, we talk about first person or first um primary sources versus secondary sources, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. almost all of the media we consume now, it's so commentary driven. It's, it's secondary source media. Anderson Cooper talking about an event with footage next to him, it, like AC360 is still a secondary source. Right. I am trying to generate primary source documentation of events so people can really see what went on. And then that next step, turning it into a documentary, posting about it and criticizing it. That's what I'm trying to enable audiences to do in an informed way. Right. That is uh, such a perfect rationale for what you do. And thank God you do it the way that you do it. When it comes to documenting these events, we had a chance to interview Ken Burns recently and the greatest documentarian of all time because 
he doesn't put his damn face in the freaking documentaries. Ooh. There's nothing <laughs> worse than documentary driven footage where the person is in front of the camera and you're like, get out of here. I love you, but go behind the camera, please, God. Don't make yourself the center of attention because, of course, you're trying to document um, the realities on the ground. When it comes to Charlottesville, you know, talk about events that lead up to things like January 6th. I mean, that was what, mm-hmm. four, three, three and a half years before January 6th, we had Charlottesville. Right. And, and yeah. there's definitely, a, there, those are two contemporary events, I would say. Um, that was sort of the first time where Trump, and I don't want to, you know, harp too much on the, on the, bloviating beast but uh that was the first time where he didn't publicly denounce nazis right and so everyone was kind of like holy shit okay what what world are we now in when that happened and you were you were documenting it what was your initial reaction because almost like school shootings it's almost become blasé right mm. which is really what was my reaction to trump's reaction is what was you- your reaction to charlottesville the events unfolding in front of your right. eyes because at this time mm. we hadn't really experienced trump on the ground like what does his rogue rodents look like when they <laughs> uh, when they multiply and come together yeah. What was your um, initial reaction where you're like, this shit is getting serious or where you're like this? I guess this is par for the course. I think that with the exception of the fatality of that day, it was fairly was predictable Heiser, to me right? a lot or, uh, of what happened. He- Heather, Heyer, um, yeah, Heather Heyer died and I, I was um, present for that happening. And I would Ugh. say that it continues to be the most deeply traumatic, you know, um, sort of moment of my career. You were there um, when that maniac drove his but, car into the crowd? Uh, so I was basically around the corner and I was live streaming at the time. Mm. So my my live stream was used in his criminal prosecution. My footage is being used in the Science v. Kessler civil case that's happening oh. right now. Um, but the basically I was around the corner from it such that thankfully I was not in the path of the car. And I, I, was, I was able to hear but not see the moment of the crash itself. And actually when that crash happened, it was so loud that I saw one of my commenters, right. Were those gunshots, right? Like, like the initial reaction from my own audience was that the bang was so loud. It seemed, it seemed like that, but I, to to me on on the live stream, I knew that it wasn't gunfire, but I was like, something just happened. And so I kind of, I start running in that direction and the car actually went in reverse and drove away um, initially like, because after crashing through the crowd, it hit two cars on the other side of it. So I think it seemed like James Alex Fields uh, believed that he could drive all the way through <laughs> and probably did not realize that there would be cars on the other side. Okay. And so then he goes in reverse. And so I see this um, partially smashed uh, car drive away in reverse. And from there, then I go to see basically the you know people bleeding and trying to recover, street medics and so forth. Oh, how um, many people were actually that, injured in that? Because obviously we hear about Heather. Uh, and yeah, rightfully so, I, so, but how many people were actually hurt in that? So I believe the final count was 19. I think that oh I, I remember saying on my own live stream that it was, uh, that I think I had counted with my own eyes 16 and then later heard 19 um, plus Heather who died. Did that um, seem like, did that seem like a culmination of events that you could have predicted? Well, I, it, I think that in some ways it was foreshadowed throughout the summer. So that that period of time has now been referred to as the summer of hate, 
Mm. Um, there's a book literally called Summer of Hate about it, but this is also kind of an informal way that people have um, described it. And something I would say, by the way, is a lot of people use the term Charlottesville now synonymously with the events that happened at Charlottesville. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. as someone who has since then visited then for other occasions since then, I would just remind people Charlottesville is an actual place, right? right. If you lived in uh, a town that's called Springfield and a tragedy happened in Springfield, you wouldn't want people to refer to Springfield as tragedy. You would want to think of your town as the town and the date of the thing. So in Charlottesville, people call right. it 812, what happened, or summer of hate to refer to the whole thing. Yeah. In any event, um, the summer of hate had this rising trend of kind of the alt-right who were latching onto Trump's presidency. And the rhetoric they would generally say was that Trump was bringing things deeply into their direction, that they felt like Trump was not quite doing everything that they wanted him to. They wouldn't kind of, Trump wouldn't take that full leap into, uh, you know, explicitly and openly uh, sort of being racist, right? So, so Trump used the word nationalist, um, but and he would say we're keeping out illegal immigrants. But Trump wouldn't explicitly say we're keeping out illegal immigrants on the basis of race, right? And so the alt right thought that Trump was taking things their way, but not all the way that they wanted to go. Mm. And um, during this time, there was also this sort of morbid fascination that a lot of the mainstream media had with them, where you had like the New York Times writing this article that is kind of infamous now in this space where it was called something like the Nazi next door, where they're observing like, wow, look, this guy who believes in national socialism and worship Hitler, he has a wife and he makes dinner. He's like a human being. Whoa. Right. And mm. so like, as if this was a very profound observation. And so it wasn't really until like Charlottesville, that that world collapsed for a lot of the people associated with it, that they started getting arrested and sued mm. and, you know, their organizations mm -hmm. went bankrupt and kind of fell apart. But Charlottesville was the height of their empowerment, a point at which they went there without masks on, that they felt perfectly comfortable going and showing their faces literally lit by torchlight uh, mm -hmm. as they're chanting things like Jews will not replace us. And that, and then it fell apart after that. Yeah. I want to talk about the power that Donnie had on the minds of these people. Cause that was one thing that mm -hmm. uh, four hours at the Capitol showed when Donald said, all right guys, four hours later, um, after not calling in uh, any help or backup for the police or, um, mm -hmm. way too late. But, you know, when he did talk, people listened. I want to talk about that uh, in a second. But before that, I want to talk about the concept of live streaming these events without editors. Right. You right. know, it reminds me of Philando Castile in Minneapolis. When I watched that mm -hmm. on Facebook Live mm -hmm. and I still had Facebook, I was like, is this a fucking horrific, macabre improv everywhere? I couldn't believe it um, because it looks... Yeah just surreal you know watching this man be bleed out in front of your eyes upsetting. yeah when it comes to what you do is there any um i don't want to say hesitation but understanding that these events are being streamed live without any uh seven second delay any yeah. hesitation when it comes to presenting this stuff and unfiltered, as you mentioned, you know, people are commenting on your live stream. They're like, I think someone just got shot. And they're like, no, dude, somebody that was a car that ran into a crowd. Mm -hmm. Any concern of just that like immediate um, kind of presentation? Um, you know, I think that while while live streams can be used by bad actors to create disinformation. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that kind of stuff can certainly occur. And so it's sort of like, by the way, if you're live streaming an event, how would you would just uh, what just film? certain groups I, or have actors or well so i mean at this point um 
like I, I actually don't even read my like comment section. So it's hard for me to respond when something is live to people mm. who might be trying to pontificate about it falsely. But okay. the thing that I would say is that live stream by definition, although there's discretion as to the direction that you point the camera and certainly somebody could, if they chose to on a live stream, say things that are wrong. Right. right. My view is that by having kind of a C-SPAN style where I talk very, very limited, right. Sometimes I, I do an entire stream without speaking at all. If I think, it's fairly self-obvious what's going on. Right. Um, and to the extent that I do talk, it's usually to just describe, just so you know, the guys in uh, who are wearing all black are leftists and the guys with the red ball caps, those are MAGA people, right? Sure. Like, but these are contextual comments. They're not like, oh, those are the good guys, those are the bad guys or something like that. Um, so I, I think that it creates a objective timeline of what happens. And I think that that can be deeply helpful to understanding what went on later. So, and often you don't understand the relevance of those things until you actually shoot them. So for mm. example, mm -hmm. the, um, the car attack at Charlottesville, the car or the person, James Alex Fields drove by me six minutes before um, that crash happened. And mm. Because of that, um, we, the public and, you know, the prosecutor, like just the world, um, to the extent that they care, know what direction James Alex Fields was heading and in what place six minutes before that attack. And that was used to some extent to show what his uh, intent was, right? That he actually kind of knew that there were people in a specific place and he turned around to get back, right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but at the time it was just a car going by, right? Like I wouldn't think of it any differently than any other car going by. Sure. And it wasn't until the next day that I was informed, did you realize that this person drove past you? And I was like, oh, wow, geez. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. I, you also don't know what you're going to end up capturing um, that would be fairly unpredictable. So, for example, um, covering the NFAC, the Not Effing Around Coalition, which is a black nationalist militia group in Louisville, mm. Kentucky this summer, okay. during a, um, they had about 500 people prepping firearms at a park ahead of an armed march, and an individual um, had a negligent discharge of a shotgun, and three people were injured. And because I was live streaming, I was the only person uh, other than a security cam that is always recording in the park. I was mm -hmm. the only human being, actually, I guess I should say, that actually recorded that moment, right? That actually got that specific moment on tape. Right. Um, ultimately, because the only the three people who were injured were all part of the NFAC, nobody pressed charges against the person who negligently discharged. Sure. Um, but those sorts, these sorts of situations, right? Imagine if, the, if that did get litigated, right? If people were arguing about what happened, um, I, I think that ultimately, like from truth comes reason, and so live stream in my mind mm. is the is the best way to start with uh, a truthful accounting of what happens. Yeah, I like that. From truth comes reason. Uh, that's a great point. Also, if you have negligent discharge, go to the doctor. Um, so when it comes to uh, the camera, I'm uh -huh. interested. Do you feel as if it alters anything just by nature of being there? Mm. When people see you with the camera, do they become performative? Uh, um, this is an interesting question. And I think that there is, to some extent, that is something that people have to always be aware is happening. But I'm also pretty seldom the only camera at something. I might be the only person using the format of live stream at an event. That certainly happens. Um, but for the most part, when people do political activism, they're doing it because they want people to see it, right? Mm -hmm. What good would political activism be if nobody saw the thing? Good, and so if they're trying to have people see it, 
they're probably not then averse to people recording it. And so there can be some exceptions where, you know, for example, if people confer, you know, ideology onto me, right? Like at one point in, in Portland once a year ago, um, like a right-wing militia member approached me and he said, we have intelligence that you're Antifa. And it took like seven <laughs> minutes to like, um, to, to sort of talk that situation down. Wait, the but, dude, like, wait hold on a second. What yeah. was the, what, yeah. okay. How, wait, how, <laughs> yeah, what, what borough did he, what, what do they have? Yeah, so I never really found out exactly because I was asking, like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? There's nothing um, more dangerous like than the... someone who can't get into the military <laughs> or the police force. It reminds me of my uncle. He was too fat for the military and too dumb to be a cop. <laughs> and it's just these people um, are just fucking so lame. Anyway, well, so I'm not going to make fun of uh, any movement on the whole in order to maintain my objectivity. No, but thank I'll say you. That the, very, I can do that. Law, the, you can yes, do that. I'm, a, like. I'm a bloviator for sure. <laughs> no, yeah, um, I think that the flaw that that person was falling into, um, which you know, I don't know exactly who told him what or whatever, but was again conferring meaning onto the content that I've captured. I, I speculate, although I do not know, that what might have happened was that there's actually a anti-fascist Twitter account called It's Going Down that had apparently taken one of my tweets on the ground from that morning and screenshotted it and reposted it on their own Twitter. So although I don't know this for a fact, my, my speculation would be that perhaps they saw a leftist site, you know, citing me. Um, like I said, primary versus secondary source, right? I document something, someone criticizes it, and then they say, oh, look, a leftist used your thing. Ergo, you are one of the leftists. You are and a leftist, That's yeah. a fallacy. And I think that's a great reminder of when people say we have intelligence, we got reason, we've done our research. It means right. they looked on Twitter. <laughs> right, Twitter, yeah. Yes. Twitter or worse. Or worse. <laughs> I always um, get mine from Pornhub. <laughs> it's reliable. Yeah, Pornhub Intel. Yeah. Intel Hub. Yeah, and I know Travis and Fernando, I'm sure you guys have questions. I know you and Travis, are you guys are close. Um, but how many events do you go to, Ford? What uh, what does your schedule look like? Because I think it's just such a fascinating. Again, we're talking with Ford Fisher, independent journalist. Uh, check out all of his work. He co-founded and designed this website, NewsToShare.com. It's uh, got independent journalism, and uh, it's just you know, thank God for what you guys are doing. Uh, what does your schedule look like when it comes to these events? And yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty up and down, depending on kind of the political nature of the world at that moment. So, for example, I would say like from roughly like October of last year until January of this year, there was, you know, so much stuff that I, w I was flying around and like, you know, covering an event and then flying and then covering another event in the same day, like that level of of there was so much uh, going on from in, go, leading up to the election and then the election happens and then the election is disputed. And I felt very strongly, and it kind of leads to part of why we're talking today, that like this budding stop the steal movement, yeah. which was um, really flirting both ways with Trump. Trump was egging them on and they were egging Trump on to push into this idea that the election was stolen. And I felt like this is a, this is a very, um, uh, fascinating movement, and mm -hmm. it has the potential to really shape our shape or threaten, uh, depending on how you look at it, like our democracy and our constitution. Right? Mm -hmm. um, that that was that situation of January sixth was kind of the closest 
um, that America came, at least in my lifetime, to like seriously questioning, you know, is America going to look the same uh, constitutionally as it did, um, you know, a year ago? Well, and years Ford, ago, you, made, whatever. you made a great point earlier as well about how these things don't exist in a vacuum. I mean, when it comes to the stop the steal, when it comes to what happened on mm-hmm. January 6th, we can go all the way back to 2000. When Roger right. Stone had the event in Florida where they stopped the recount, obviously it didn't get bloody. People didn't die. But if you look at the footage of that, that was a precursor to what happened in some ways, because this was a Roger Stone production as well. Right. Uh, January 6th. And we're finding out we talked about this on the last episode. All of the people meeting at the hotel there, all the war Ooh. games. Bernie Carrick was there with Giuliani and Bannon. Right. I mean, it's just insane. So you're right. These things don't exist in a vacuum. And so when you saw the stop to steal stuff and then, you know, there's this big event coming up. Did you have any foresight on January 1st when you're like, OK, this event's happening? Did you have any uh, spider sense mm-hmm. as someone who's seen all of this stuff on the ground before that this was going to be a fucking shit show? Yes. So the so January 6th. Yes. I think that a lot of <laughs> I think that a lot of. uh media has kind of left out or, or maybe ignored the fact they that January 6th was really the, <laughs> Dude, after I watched four hours at the Capitol and I've seen a couple of other docs on it, the uh-huh. media sucks. This yes. entire thing has been whitewashed and uh, brushed under the goddamn rug. And I don't understand why right. it's just so unbelievably disgusting what happened. And the media has n- not even covered it. They, they don't know how to cover it because again, they need mm-hmm. those. Uh, they need those marketing dollars. I think that they were interested in certain things that drove narrative, and so they skipped parts that I think, in my mind, are important, even if less sexy to watch. So what okay. I was getting at was that January sixth was actually the third of three so-called like million MAGA March events. Right? Mm. There was one in November, very shortly after the election. I think that was November fourteenth, and then the second was December twelfth, and then of course the third was January sixth. And those events drew thousands upon thousands of people into DC supporting the notion that the election had been stolen uh, from then President Trump. And Trump sort of kind of promoted on Twitter the first one and drove by it in the motorcade. And the second one, he flew over in a helicopter and he pretended that he did. I, well, I shouldn't say he pretended. He, I, it's hard for me to imagine that Trump didn't know about the second one beforehand, but he claimed that he was surprised to see how much how many people showed up to D.C. to support him. I guess I'll, I'll leave it to people's individual conscious, you know, whether they believe him or not. I don't believe anything that damn per- he doesn't but- <laughs> tell the truth. He can't tell the truth. So maybe he accidentally did tell the truth, but there's no I'm sure. He, also, that man is so up his own ass. There is no way he did not know there was an event uh, honoring his uh, his uh, being. Right. So January 6th, though, had all of the makings of the first two, the numbers of people who said they were coming, all of that kind of stuff. But with the addition of, for the first time, Trump is telling people to go there and be wild. And the other Mm. thing was that I think that the mainstream media wasn't really like watching as much was that as much as for most people, it's like, okay, the election happens and then the election is done. The Trump world was very, very, very interested in the formal process of election certification at the time. And so they were talking about it, especially Rudy Giuliani, as January 6th is the last stop in a technical process. And so the way that they were talking about it was January 6th is the last chance to fix it. If we don't succeed on Jan 6th, then Trump really, truly is leaving. 
And many of them had really convinced themselves Trump literally isn't leaving. Like, so I think that there was this trend of feeling like they were losing power. And so January, January 1st and January 2nd, there were protests, you know, in other places of the country. For example, in Olympia, Washington, near the state capitol in Washington, mm -hmm. this media, this event got barely any coverage. But there were Trump supporters who were protesting at the state capitol and ultimately attempting to fight the myriad of um, leftist counter protesters. But the police ended up, you know, tear gassing Trump supporters. And that doesn't happen very much. Right. The police generally had a very favorable attitude toward the right and, and vice versa. But right. by the end of that event, Trump supporters were saying no more backing the blue. Right. Literally stomping on thin blue line flags. And what I think huh. that that symbolized to me at the time and, and it became vastly more true just a few days later, was that I think the Trump supporters were feeling like they were losing their grip on, on power, right? Like the word paramilitary is sometimes used to describe some of these organizations like militias sure. or, um, you know, I don't use the term paramilitary to describe the Proud Boys because for the most part, um, they're not armed with firearms at events. But these groups that uh, seem to basically be kind of a forceful street wing of the state that was in power, felt like, wait a second, in a few weeks, we might actually be kind of the dissidents, right? Turning from turning from paramilitaries representing the state into dissidents who the state dislikes and views right. essentially as terrorists, that's a really big transition that's going to make you pretty emotional, and it might make you lash out, and it especially might make you lash out if the president of the United States tells you at a speech, we're now marching uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol, and I'll be there with you. And he also said in that speech, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Mm. Right. These are very, very big statements. And so, you know, I'm not making necessarily like, like a legal commentary. Right. Like, does the First Amendment protect that? Is he exact? Is he really calling for violence? He never specifically said storm the Capitol, do violent acts. So I'm not taking a position on should he be impeached or some or stuff like that. But as he was saying those things, I was standing in that speech and the people hearing him, their chant was fight for Trump, fight for Trump. He didn't have to say it, but that's what they're chanting in response to what he is saying. So yeah. whatever he's saying, what they're hearing is like, we got to do battle for him. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's basically what ended up happening, right? <laughs> like they and there's no uh, they there then is, went to the Capitol and we know what yeah. happened after that. And of course, there is no uh, I don't give any credence to this like. He's playing 4D chess. He knew he knew exactly what he was doing, and we all know exactly what he was doing, and we know exactly what his words. He knew exactly how they were resonating with the crowd, and maybe they needed one another to fulfill the circuit. Um, but of course, he was so well aware of the power that he had, and you mm. mentioned how the group didn't want to lose power, right? Imagine right. Donald. You know, these were the last four hours mm, right. of the peak power that he'll ever have. Right. Now he's back to, you know, being a Trump right. impersonator, going to people's <laughs> bar mitzvahs uh, unannounced. That's what he does now in Florida. But I want to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about um, the speech. So Trump gives the speech. You're on the ground there. He says, all right, go do what you got to do. It's all over. But I thought what was interesting was, and this is what I learned again, watching four hours at the Capitol, the riot, the break in had begun before he stopped talking. Yes. So, so this that was is something that people had like these these people were cocked mm. and loaded and they just needed the smallest fingerprint to pull the trigger, the smallest little chubby Trump finger to pull the gun and, and uh, set him off. Yeah. So 
the thing about that actually is I did, at least from my own perspective, is so I filmed the entirety of the Trump speech from the perspective of the majority of people who listened to it. So my actual, the sequence that uses the most of my footage in the film that you're referring to is actually the scene of that speech as seen from the National Mall, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of that footage is mine. And so it is true that, yeah, as that was going on, it was basically the Proud Boys who began the very initial breach of the outer barricades um, on the side of the Capitol. And so what I have heard even Trump supporters recently, you know, I actually went to uh, Texas where Ashley Babbitt's family held an event recently mm -hmm. and interviewing one of the people there who spoke at that event, who has since become a little bit Trump skeptical, like he felt like Trump let down the movement following that event. He was asking, I wonder what Trump knew as he was giving that speech. Did he know while that while, you know, he was talking to his supporters that they were already um, doing this? Could he have called them off? Like, what what did he choose to do? What did he choose not to do? Right. There have been a lot of questions about what did he know and when. I've heard reports that he was glued to the television once he got back to the White House, basically. Wow. Um, and then he didn't make a statement until much later. And his statement was, go home in peace. But he says, you're all very special. And these are the things that happen when the election is stolen. So Tr Trump's initial reaction was basically to indicate that it's that it was justified in a way, right. right? Like that seemed to be his initial feeling that maybe he didn't like the way that it was looking, but he he didn't seem to conceptually oppose the concept of the storming of the Capitol mm -hmm. sort of well, as it was and, happening. And, and of course, he doesn't have the uh, empathetic bone or the, the gene <laughs> to understand that people were getting hurt man i mean you look at the mm -hmm. footage again this is why the media has done a horrible job there's people uh you know there's one dude he's got a bullet a rubber bolt in his freaking cheek uh yeah. there's people who are being trampled i mean obviously we know the five people lost their lives it is just so disgusting his reaction and it gets more disgusting as time goes on you mentioned how you were in an event in texas and mm -hmm. uh the republican uh was like hey man this dude who was a trumper was like i don't think he helped us we talked about this uh, on some episodes recently in the last one there's a lot of people who are realizing they followed a a, a liar you know and they realize that they're the ones who got in trouble uh, there was a fellow who was uh, he was a cowboy for trump yeah, Coey Griffin. And I love cowboys, but I don't necessarily love cowboys for Trump. And um, <laughs> okay. he talked about talked about how, uh, you know, he, they really believed they were going to lock Hillary up. And they really thought this was all going to happen. And the only people getting locked up are Trump supporters, the yeah. ones who committed these federal crimes at the Capitol. Any sense from, and we'll get back to the Capitol as well, but any sense after this in the macro sense that Trumpers realized that they were duped as many people who uh, believed in this man realized they were duped uh, um, over the past, you know, 40 years. So I, I do want to just sort of state for the record that I be in, in maintaining my objectivity, I'm not necessarily agreeing with all of the premises of your question out loud um, with that being. So I mean, you're certainly entitled to your position in the way that you asked that. I'm not going to take the position that they necessarily were duped, but speaking about the things that I've heard them say about it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's, so one of the things that's been discussed to some extent was that, uh, many of them believed that if they committed crimes for Trump, that they'd be pardoned by Trump. The blanket um, pardons. Very, very yeah. ironically, as much as this event has been termed by most of the media as an insurrection, many of them were talking about Trump should actually 
um, invoke the Insurrection Act against the people who they believed were stealing the election from him. So they sort of felt like, in, in like I said about like holding on to power, like mm-hmm. like not losing that grip on power. I think they felt that Trump was going to be in their ring, and I think it seemed like by the next day, Trump really really adjusted his expectation of accountability in a way that felt like throwing them under the bus. So as the event so as the event is happening, Trump says, go home in peace. You're all very special. These are the things that happen. There yeah. were re- reports that um, he spoke to, I forget which congressman it was, but was it might've been Kevin McCarthy who said like, call them off, right? Like they're, you're the only yes, one they'll Kevin listen McCarthy to. Kevin McCarthy is chief of staff at the time. Right. And we've learned that and he Paul said, Gozer, Louis Gohmert, Bobert, Marjorie Taylor right. Greene, and Mo Brooks. These were people uh, that perhaps promised blanket pardons to some of the organizers, according to recent reports. So, so supposedly, though, when he was told to call them off, Trump said, well, maybe it seems like they care more about the election than you do. Right. right. So Trump <laughs> is still mo- mostly focused on himself at this moment, reportedly. And then it was the next day that he says on his Twitter, the people who stormed and committed crimes should be arrested and blah, blah, blah. Right. And he gives basically the I think the sort of standard politician speech again. And he and he seems to have reflected a lot more on it and seems to be a lot more scripted. But then uh, can't you infer that people would think that they were duped? Right. And so those audience, I think that it seems like those people who were Trump's audience who did these things because they thought that Trump sort of wanted them to um, were disappointed by him. And so he sort of, it seemed like he was betraying his base in that moment. And I think that he's heard his base criticize him about that, which is why he has now begun. And, and when I say now, I mean in the last few months, but with this gap about of about a half of a year that occurred before it, he's now begun speaking about it as um, – you know, January 6th wasn't really that bad. Mm-hmm, um, you know, he he had this line about they were hugging and kissing the police officers on the way in, <laughs> which I have, which I've never seen. Right, no, it's, man, su- it's such a Trump. That wasn't like, the footage that I saw. I love that he makes it. I love that he put like a Trump rom com spin on it, where it's right, like, no, don't hugging. worry about it. They were all having sex with each other. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I. I think it's interesting because now now Trump is trying to sort of change what happened in order to sort of support, um, you know, support his people. He started naming t- talking about Ashley Babbitt a lot. You know, thank God for people like you because you film it and it is what it is. And it's, you know, you can't alter it through history. It is what it is. Right. And so people, honest people can certainly disagree. They can look at my footage and sort of disagree about what they see. Right. People have made comparisons. Oh, is this really as bad as X, Y, Z? Right. Like I welcome people to have that sort of discussion, but the mm-hmm. actual content of the footage is fairly indisputable and nobody was hugging or kissing the police officers. That, no, they were not. That, that is certainly there that were aspect of fluids it being exchanged, but it wasn't the good kind. Uh, <laughs> um, a point that I would make generally, since you brought up both Charlottesville and J6 is that both of those situations, while I I don't want to compare them too much in terms of the philosophy that came into them, Mm. is that both of them happened, I think, at the height of enablement of those movements, Um, Mm. them feeling that the president was on their side and them happening sort of before the consequences of those events would be fully understood, right? So Mm -hmm. people storming the Capitol in my view, seemed to not believe that they would actually be in trouble for it, right? One of the moments that I captured that I thought was really interesting to me was I actually saw a lady wearing a cowboy hat 
um, handed someone her phone to take a photo next to a broken window into the Capitol. And then after taking the picture, someone else was like, oh, can I hop in? And they they take smiling photos next to the stuff. And this is what prosecutors would call evidence. Right? <laughs> like, um, right? Like, yeah. The the left has been very enamored with operational security where they were a black block, so they can't be identified. They, you know, have kicked out journalists who they think are going to get them in trouble, all that kind right. of stuff. Trump supporters, you know, seemed to really feel like um, like they were enabled in that moment and that either by pardon or because they were doing something at the behest of the president. Right. One literally I filmed while fighting the cops screamed, I'm not trespassing. I was invited here by the president. Right. Um so I think they felt really empowered. And then it really set in later as the as the arrest started happening uh, that, oh, shoot, we can actually get in trouble for that. And Absolutely. that has really decreased the amount of pro-Trump organizing that has happened since then. Right. In the weeks adjacent, in the in the following weeks, even groups that are not precisely aligned with Trump, for example, the Boogaloo movement had planned to have <laughs> I a, of, I haven't heard of the Boogaloo boys in a minute. Travis yeah. Morningstar and I used to talk about them all the right. time. So these are, the to people who don't know, these are basically <laughs> uh, hardcore libertarians who care about gun rights a lot. Um, they sometimes align with the left on certain social issues, policing issues and so forth. Um, and they uh, sometimes align with the right on kind of certain types of individual liberty and certainly firearms. They had plans for months to rally at state capitals on January 17th, and that was um, not something that the FBI seemed especially interested in, uh, but Twitter characterized it after January 6th when they removed Trump from the platform. They said there appear to be plans for secondary attacks at yes, state capitals on January 17th, which was flatly a misrepresentation, right? The Boogaloos were not related to the Trump thing. They had planned on the event for a long time, right? So January 6th and the January 17th events really had nothing to do with each other. But following January 6th, mm. um, I spoke to a lot of these Boogaloo activists and by January 17th, so in the nine days in between, I'm sorry, in the 11 days in between, um, all of them, basically all of them had FBI visits at their door, right? FBI agents were visiting them saying, what are you planning on doing? You guys aren't right. planning on storming your state capital, are you? That kind of stuff, right? So the Fed started taking it way more seriously. And so even those who were not arrested um, for roles at the Capitol, I think that there was really a suppressive effect kind of on yeah. free speech, uh, arguably, um, where people felt like, oh, we're, we're going to get in trouble. And that culminated in, you know, Inauguration Day, January 20th. There was almost no demonstrations, right? It's not like people just loved Biden so much that nobody felt like they had anything <laughs> to say on Inauguration right, right. Day. But they locked the whole city down. It was basically, you know, I live here in Washington, D.C. And as a as a local, it was really sad to feel like or not feel like literally there were more soldiers in Washington, D.C. than there were in Afghanistan at the time. Um, <laughs> at its height, I believe it was twenty two thousand in D.C. No, I mean, you in such a valid and fantastic point. I'm happy you brought it up. The tightrope, you know, that we're constantly trying to walk with the First Amendment. And obviously we need thank God for the First Amendment. We have to balance, you know, fear and danger and people's right to uh, to gather and express themselves. And I think that you're you make a very valid point. I think freedom of speech was suppressed and uh, and perhaps it still is being suppressed under, you know, the guise of what happened. And rightfully so with what happened on January 6th. Anyone involved, they live stream themselves. They're easy to find. Uh, but that can't have a chilling effect on on the right to uh, to protest. 
Yeah. And so it, it, I think it will get into kind of murky territory as we approach um, 2023, where it Trump has been basic, has all but said that he's running again. Right. right? He he it seems like he's kind of in that well, stage of politics where you don't announce because of legal reasons. But he has basically announced. And I apologize for interrupting. But to yeah, that no point, worries. will his base go back to him? I mean, we see the footage. We had the good liars on. We know the, you know, the parties are still happening. The tailgates for Trump are still going on. The hot dogs are hotter than ever. (laughs) Do you think that enough people will say, no, bro, I'm sorry. You threw me under the bus. I'm being investigated by the fucking FBI. Where's my pardon? No, screw you. Because the one thing about hardcore Trumpers is if you're Donald, it's better to have him on your side because, dare I say, they have deep emotional issues mm. and they're scary motherfuckers. Um, again, not not necessarily endorsing your commentary there because I'm either. sure that there's some to. Trump supporter listening to this who's like, what are you going to say, Ford? I'll see you at the next <laughs> event. Right? Like, this is, so that's your opinion. It's not necessarily mine. But um, yeah, I, I understand that this. So entirely, which is that, yeah, I mean, I think that even, so maybe this would actually, maybe Ashley Babbitt's mom sort of said it best to me. I, I asked Ashley Babbitt's mother about this. I was at the, so to, again, to people who don't realize, I, Ashley Babbitt is the woman who, who was shot yes. during January 6th. Mm-hmm. Right? The so one sad. homicide of January 6th was, was she was shot um, by, by a police officer. Yes. And there was actually one speaker out of the, out of that event with Ashley Babbitt's mom, there was one speaker who said, you know, I know that everybody in this room really likes Trump, but we got to say yeah. it, Trump didn't start talking about Ashley Babbitt until much later. And he said, you know, and Trump even said that he knew Lieutenant Byrd's name, um, but he didn't say who Lieutenant Byrd was. He was saying who killed Ashley Babbitt and I might have an idea, right? Trump implied that he knew, but then he didn't actually tell everybody. And so Trump wasn't really full-throatedly in support of that kind of justice for January 6th is kind of the way that that movement has characterized itself. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her what, you know, I heard these criticisms of Trump. How, how do you feel about Trump right now? Right. The mother of really the face of what happened on January 6th. Of course. How do you feel as we speak now about, about Donald Trump? And she basically said, you know, I think that there's different political forces that prevent Trump from saying everything that he wants to, but she still supports him. And she said that she would, in fact, support him again for the president. Wow. Well, that goes uh, deep. OK, well, if she supports him, then I would assume the base sticks. So there uh, I mean, there are people if, who would if, argue that Trump got Ashley wow. Babbitt killed. It's not the position that I'm necessarily taking, but people would say that. And and in spite of that, right, Ashley Babbitt's mother supports the president. And so do the people of that movement for the most part or the, the former president, I should say. So I, I think that. Overall, January 6th had a huge impact on his on his electability with people who are not part of the Trump base. Um, mm. But I don't think that he's lost uh, sort of the base itself. And it's interesting to see politicians on uh, that are not Donald Trump try to court the mega crowd. Well, sort of not court the mega crowd. Specifically, I'm referencing uh, Yunkin in Virginia Ooh. as uh, as that race. We'll talk a little <laughs> bit about that. Uh, a little bit earlier on in the show, actually, um, without you, Ford. Uh, so back to the future. <laughs> yes, exactly. Back to the future. But you look at somebody like a young kid who is like appeasing the Trump base while not really going full throated Trump and trying sure. to get the moderate Republican who was like literally broke with Trump after how he reacted after losing the election. I think he did himself actually a massive disservice think his electability in 2024 would be much higher had mm-hmm. his reaction had he ended the stop the steal narrative had january 6th never happened none of this stuff is a net political gain for donald trump i don't think 
specifically because now we have documentaries like Four Hours at the Capitol that specifically show when Donald Trump finally told people to go home, they literally read the tweet. I forget it was a tweet or something like that. They read it and were like, all right, he said we can go. And that was the beginning of the beginning of the end of the events. So people were seriously looking for a reason to stop, it seemed like. And he finally gave him that reason, which was him. So then they could say, no, I'm telling you that we have to stop because Donnie said we have to stop. I'm not a pussy. I'm not a cuck. Mm. Donald finally said we can be done with this. And I just feel like the amount of power he had on that day is still not fully expressed. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of times where it it felt like I, they didn't know exactly what their objective was. Like most, oh, most would you say it was slightly they, disorganized? Yeah, well, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's like a dog chasing like a mail truck, right? Exactly. Like, what's, what does it do once it catches it? Right. Like, exactly. Um, it doesn't read all the mail. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a moment that I saw at the Capitol that I thought was pretty interesting, which was that as people were storming in and out of the East Front, which I spent a lot of time at, this was where the Oath Keepers breached, um, that <sighs> eventually once they realized that the um, the certification had actually been paused, there was an individual who yelled into a, into a blowhorn. He said, we got what we came here for. The The certification has stopped. We need to leave peacefully now. And th- that was long before Trump um, sort of said the same. So hold on a second. Uh-huh. Oath Keepers, we know we talked about this previously. Again, there's politicians who, you know, gave to the Oath Keepers and vice versa. Did yep. Was there correspondence like with Oath Keepers? Did they feed Trump the line, do you think, that, hey, we we got the pause, let's let's call it. And as soon as they were on board with exiting, Trump was like, oh, we lost our big guns. All right, let's call it. Who was it like? What do you think? Again, completing the circuit, which is so hard because Trump, the one thing he does have, he does have an emotional absorption. Uh, He has that kind of intelligence where the audience feeds off of him and he feeds off the audience. Half of his things he just throws out there, like drain the swamp. He specifically said, I thought it was kind of stupid, but y'all love it, don't you? And they were like, yeah, we love it. He's like, I keep on saying it. Did who who was in charge there when it comes to getting this when it comes to ending this? Yeah. So the Oath Keepers were drastically more organized, I would say, than than essentially most of the other participants who seem to be kind of aimless, like kind of moving Mm. with the crowd. Um, The Oath Keepers, for example, right, there was a stack. This ended up being a shot of mine that I think probably the most often cited um, shot of mine of January 6th was that there was a stack of them where basically about a dozen of them were holding each other shoulder to shoulder and they pushed through the crowd together in a coordinated way and then they got to the door and they and they breached the door when other people couldn't that I was at. And so they had, I would say, they. it seemed like they were internally organized. And what was interesting to me was that Stuart, I actually photographed Stuart Rhodes, who is the founder and who kind of runs the Oath Keepers uh, and has been for the last decade, was present at the Capitol, but didn't physically enter. And he has been described in FBI documents as basically unindicted co-conspirator number one, right? Like he hasn't caught an indictment, but they did uh, take a scan of his phone. And so it, you know, it's unclear whether he's going to be charged with conspiracy or something because he didn't physically go in. I don't think that I I would be pretty surprised if history shows any kind of evidence of direct coordination between the Oath Keepers and Trump. I don't Mm. think that that's really Trump's managerial style. I've actually I've been reading um, Michael Cohen's book, which was written quite a bit before um, January 6th, but it does shed light on Trump's 
managerial style because it has a lot of about him before even being the president. And Trump like has a lot of phone calls. He does a lot of kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge about what he wants people to do. Um, he does not like emails. He doesn't like leaving a written sort of record of his conversations. And so I think it was consistent with like, for example, on January 6th, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And then pe people kind of hear that and they think they know what he means, but he's mm -hmm. not exactly saying go storm the Capitol to physically prevent this thing from happening in the, in the same way. Pro-Trump groups, I think, might have, you know, felt like this is what we need to do for him and he probably wants us to be doing it. But I would be very surprised if there's any evidence that Trump ever said, like, make sure the Oath Keepers get in there. Right. Like or so, like, you know, he's not actively, um, you know, creating orders. It's all it's all couched in in, you know, sort of deniability. Right. I would have right, never asked right. them to do this. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Well, and speaking of somebody who followed Donald Trump for a long time and then came to loathe the man, Michael Cohen, of course, his former attorney who spent time behind bars as Donald spent time in the White House. So again, uh, you are yeah. always the fall man. When I say you, I'm talking to everyone out there, including ourselves. We are always the fall men for the people in power and the people in power use people for their own good. And it was a numbers game. Mm -hmm. And you look at the people in that crowd and uh, I've looked at those people in Vegas and I've played three card poker with them. And then you see them in this scenario where they are so warped and so just completely dead eyed and enamored by this idea of, again, making sure Donald Trump stayed in the presidency, that they did things that I if you wrote down the things that those people did and you told them two days before they did it, that they were going to do it, they would call you a fucking liar. But when they were there, they did it. I think there was also a like the way that Michael Cohen got sort of thrown under the bus or whatever. Right. Trump has this sort of attitude of like loyalty where there's this kind of transactional you're with me, I'm with you thing. And essentially, like one betrayal of that would kind of cause somebody's ejection from the Trump sort of space, right? Michael Cohen would be one example, but, you know, there throughout the Trump presidency, right, there was sometimes this reality show analogy of like, who's going to get kicked off the island, right? Sure. You had the, um, uh, what's the guy who hates pot and looks like a Keebler elf? Uh, Jeff Sessions, right? Like, <laughs> so you had like Jeff Sessions, <laughs> is, yes. you know, was full-throatedly for the Trump agenda, like one of the early endorsers of primary yeah. candidate Trump, uh, you know, and yet Jeff Sessions recuses himself from the Russia investigation and Trump's like, oh, he's no good. He's right? <laughs> like, No more Big Macs for you, buddy. William Barr is in full-throated support of Trump, is trying to prosecute, uh, you know, people who are anti-Trump protesters and, mm -hmm. and helping Disgusting. him do these, like all of this kind of stuff. 
Um, but William Barr in the end says, I didn't find real evidence of election shifting voter fraud. And Trump's like, he's a traitor. And so what it, in a way, it was kind of like this culmination, this climax point, you know, the vice president is supposed to be the secondhand man of the president, man or woman. And uh, so that final moment, like it got to the point where it's Trump was saying to his audience, we need to help Mike Pence have the courage to stand up for me. And Mike Pence, um, for all the criticisms that someone could have of him, ultimately kind of stood with his understanding of the Constitution, that it wasn't really his role to try to interrupt the process as president of the Senate. It was his role to, you know, certify if that's what the electors did. And so Pence wasn't going to go ahead with with uh, trying to overturn it for Trump just because he wanted to. And the and the the people participating at January 6th, right, I heard them chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, right? Like that that was kind of the climax point of Trump's presidency, that it was really just Trump is the only one left, right? And so there are people who, who stuck by his side, um, you know, in politics kind of since then. But in that moment, it really was just Trump and all bets about any other ally or anybody else are off, right? Mm. This man who stood by Trump for the last four years, who Trump said, you know, this is going to be my, you know, like this is the perfect strong administration, Pence with this kind of Christian conservatism, Trump right. with his, you know, populist um, right-wing views, right? That this would create the coalition that would that would bring the American right into the new century, right? And right, right. Um, and by the end of it, it's hang Mike Pence. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and of course, uh, you know, he only likes to be choked by mother. I'm sure he doesn't want to be <laughs> killed by the mob. Um, well, I asked what, one of the interviews that I conducted on that day was there was an individual who came out from the door that I had been covering on the east side. And he said that he had just witnessed what we later found out was the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. And I didn't mm. even believe him. Um, this was before I, I actually knew that to be a fact. He said, I basically, I just saw a girl who got shot and she's dead. But he said oh that because as I'm doing this interview with him, the the people around him start chanting, hang Mike Pence. And I asked him, what is your message to Mike Pence? And he says, "Vice Pre-, and he's in, speaking into my camera, Vice President Pence, there's the blood is on your hands. Um, now we've got a girl inside that's, that's been <sighs> shot and she's dead. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> like, tell me about that. Because it wasn't even the first thing that came to mind. He's talking about the uh, issue of saving the election or whatever. And, you know, and how he doesn't and how he protested Mitch McConnell has betrayed him. Everybody's a traitor. And then I asked about Vice President Pence. And then he says, like, it was the fact that someone just died in front of him. He literally just witnessed somebody be shot to death. And it uh, wasn't his first priority, like in wanting to talk to me. Um, but then he tells me that I was completely in like disbelief about it, but he put the blame on Pence's hands. And then he said, I'm sure to the disdain of his lawyer, uh, now, um, if we have to come back and take every one of these traitors out, then we will. And (laughs) so definitely not helpful to him. You know, it's just so sad, you know, as we started this conversation again, uh, Ford Fisher, uh, journalist, go to news to share.com. God, thank God for citizen journalists. It started, we started our conversation with Charlottesville, the death of Heather Heyer. And now we're here with the, with the death of Ashley Babbitt. And for what? You know, what the fuck was accomplished? Absolutely nothing. And it's just so sad. Again, we talk about this all the time on the show. Just be careful who you follow and be careful, you know, where you find yourself. 
because there are situations that are bigger than us. And uh, Ashley and Heather, it's just a tragedy. I mean, granted, they were two very different situations. Ex- extremely different uh, situations. Extremely yes. different. Different. And Ashley, um, you know, it is it is what it is. Um, Heather Heyer, obviously, just an innocent civilian who was not storming the Capitol. And uh, no one deserves to die, but... It's just tragic. So, Ford, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Travis and Fernando, do you guys have any questions? I would be, I mean, we've been going for a while. So, thank you so much for giving us so much time. Once we start, happy to answer any additional questions if you guys have something else. (laughs) Um, I have a really, I have three questions, but they're all related. So, I'm just going to ask them all together if that's all right. Okay, let's do it. So, basically, do you believe that one side can be wrong? And um, how can you stay objective even when you know that there's a side that's wrong? And then, is there a worry that by staying objective, by staying independent, that you're helping the wrong That's a great side? Great point. Great question, Fernando. Yeah. Um, so I think I actually alluded to this um, before, um, but I'm but I'm very happy to to keep talking about it because it really is central to like my philosophy of of coverage. So mm-hmm. yeah. So for so I I do believe in like when people talk about this like mantra of like you know, being neutral in a situation of oppression is basically siding with the oppressor, right? Like the very extreme example that right, people right. use this like picture of like, you know, like people from the Ku Klux Klan on one side and then people, uh, you know, opposing them that have signs that say like civil rights. And then there's this like big brain centrist in the middle that's like compromise, right? Mm. Like, um, so I want to be clear that I do not see myself as neutral. I don't like the word neutral and mm. I find mm. neutral to be a pejorative that sometimes attached to me. I think objectivity and neutrality are, are rather different concepts, right? So in my mind, neutrality is what CNN does when it says we're having on, uh, you know, one Democratic uh, advisor and one conservative talk show host. And it's they're Paul Begala and Rick Santorum. That's <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right, 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 exactly. Or, Ugh. you know, we're talking about climate change. So here's uh, we have Bill Nye, the science guy, and then we have this uh, guy who went to church. Right, right like radio something. host. Yeah, exactly. Like, or something. So they present two sides and try to make it seem like, and sometimes this happens also in written news media where it's like they seek comment from each side to present exactly one quote from each side, which sort of implies the equivalence of the two positions. So I don't feel that way. My, my view is that my role is not to attempt to adjudicate right or wrong, right? I'm trying to create the primary source documentation that enables people to then ask those questions, right? So I go out and film a situation and I'm getting the words on record so that people can then use them later. I don't think that it's incredibly valuable for me to go out and argue with the wrong people and tell the good people that they're right, right? Whoever I believe those people are. Because I do think that in certain situations, it's actually not that easy, right? I think that we actually have an easier time at finding what's the right answer in some cases by actually hearing people out, right? There there are sometimes, um, I hesitate to give examples, but there are sometimes when I've covered events that I actually legitimately see two sides counter-protesting. And in my own brain, I'm thinking, I'm actually not sure which of these two sides I personally um, agree with, right? Like there are certain subjects that I actually do have mixed feelings on. Um, I think that regardless of whether a situation seems very clear cut or whether it seems like a gray area, I think it's most informative to generate that primary source work so that then people can talk about it. So in Charlottesville, I didn't need to say those evil Nazis in order to document people chanting obviously anti-Semitic um, you know, slurs and so forth that then benefit documentaries that then expose the, the hatefulness, right? Um, 
I've contributed to the Frontline Films uh, film series called Documenting Hate. It was a two episode series. Obviously, documenting hate is not something that takes a neutral approach to whether hate is good or bad. But my content, which doesn't have a sort of opinion built into it, uh, enabled that research to happen. So I think that you have to have that primary source reporting in order to then better inform the secondary source reporting that that attempts to ask these questions about right or wrong and historical implications and so forth. Well, and, and I'll go ahead and uh, follow that up for it. Obviously, thank you for maintaining your objectivity here mm-hmm. today, although we do have you making at least one anti-Keebler elf comment. Yeah, we got it on the record. <laughs> we got you on the record, so Good don't worry. cookies right. now, friend. I'm, I'm, I'm sending that footage to Dennis Kucinich, so he will be very upset. You don't necessarily sure. know that I dislike Keebler elves when I compare Fair enough. You just know what they look like. Jeff yes. Sessions, the Keebler elf, which may or may not be a good thing. <laughs> right, You're right. a big Sessions fan. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm happy you mentioned Inauguration Day because obviously so much of your work, it adds so much to hindsight, foresight, dare I say, Ford sight our political discourse. But obviously, the last time I saw you was Inauguration Day. And yes, it was an extremely mm-hmm. quiet day. In fact, the piece that I did for Mediaite that day was interviewing other journalists on how quiet DC was. And I think you made a little cameo in there. And do you think, I think I want to get on the other side of January 6th. You know, there's been this long lull. You mentioned Charlottesville was an apex. January 6th was an apex. But there's this long lull in between. Do you think we're entering another period of lull? And then will this build up to, like you said, another potential apex if and when Trump decides to run and announce in 23 and then carry it out in 24? Yeah, so there's there's definitely a a I would call an evolving coalition of the street right, and so starting with the the previous one, like you had the you had the pre we'll call it the pre Charlottesville era had the MAGA movement growing, and then sort of parallel but not exactly connected to it, the alt right growing using Trump to sort of uh, connect themselves to it, ch- chanting things like "Hail Trump." Um, but then proclaiming policies that Trump hasn't to fix himself to, like white nationalism. And then post-Charlottesville, the far right that was explicitly racist, right? The alt-right who who wants non-whites not to live in the country, right? Literally white nationalists, um, that largely fell apart, right? That kind of organizing mostly dissipated. And there was really a rise of like civic nationalism as they would self-identify, right? Groups like the Proud Boys, uh, Oath Keepers, militia groups skyrocketed in numbers, groups that may oppose unrestricted um, immigration, but they say that it's not race-based. They say that they stand for Western values, which a lot of people um, might see as a dog whistle about race, but uh, they are multi-ethnic, right? There are a lot of uh, conservative Hispanics who are part of the Proud Boys, for example. Um, and so the coalition kind of changed. And so at January 6th, the more explicitly like racial groups still are using these um, euphemisms, right? Like there were uh, groups like the Groyper movement proclaims that they're not white nationalists, but they really flirt with anti-Semitism. They really flirt with white nationalist ideas. <laughs> and then they get to march sort of alongside um, people who are Trump supporters, but from vastly different perspectives, like people with Israeli flags who are you know, full-throated MAGA supporters. So the, the Trump coalition kind of changed, um, but it was 
But as opposed to organizing around some kind of racial ideal, it was organized around nationalist language and Trump himself, really Trump as the as the thing that they were fixated on. Right. I love the idea of them flirting with anti-Semitism like they're peacocking. You know, <laughs> they just wore their favorite armband. They just want to look good. They just want to so, look good for anti-Semitism and maybe they kiss a little bit. So evolving since January 6th, um, it has changed coalitions a little bit again, where the Proud Boys, for example, have found it harder to organize with a lot of their leadership in, in trouble for different reasons, right? The the number one guy of the Proud Boys is currently serving, Enrique Tarrio is currently serving about a five-month sentence over events that happened at the second Million MAGA March. Um, Joe Biggs is still detained pre-trial after he essentially led the Proud Boys into January 6th. So, so the Proud Boys right now have a lot of um, basically like state chapter organizations that don't really have national leadership. So their, their movement has changed in the sense that it's become more decentralized. Um, and those groups are really interfacing a lot more with kind of the anti-vax type groups, right? So one of the new issues taken up by the right is um, you know opposition to vaccine mandates and so forth, which is pulling in other types of individuals, right? You've actually had uh, bizarrely, like in New York City, some Black Lives Matter groups have even gotten involved in that sort of thing on the premise of is is there going to be racial discrimination when it comes to you know vaccine passports and so forth? So their sure. coalition is kind of changing, but the types of people who were affixed to Trump are not using necessarily Trump as their main. Um, you know, thing anymore. Right. So for example, people who believed in QAnon, right? Like that was a really big element of the uh, Trump people who made it out onto the street, people who very full-throatedly supported Trump and believed that they could have a real effect on, you know, keeping Trump in the presidency. Those people didn't just vanish, right? Like, but they are not organizing under the name of like Q anymore. So you, you see less of these Q icons at these events, but people who have that belief system are still out there. Right. Yeah. And so I think that Trump base, right, there's probably 50 to 60 million people in this country right now who still think that the election was stolen. And of those, some number of them, I, I would call it tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands who participate in, in street action, in political activism beyond voting and typing things on the internet. Right. And so I think that when Trump uh, pretty much inevitably runs again, right? There's only two things that can possibly happen. He wins or he loses, right? right? It could be that he loses in primary or right. that he loses in general election, but one way or another, either he at some stage in it ends up losing um, or he does and in fact end up uh, you know, winning the presidency again. I think that if he, if at some stage he loses, I think you would have a MAGA movement that is extremely, um, upset and extremely prone to believe that it was stolen from him somehow, right? That, that Trump is going to say that there was election fraud or what, like whatever, if, if he loses or if Trump wins, then in a way we, we end up doing this whole thing again. Right. Yeah. And so, all right, well, let's not, let's not even talk about that. I got to, I got an alert. So, okay, it is. Issues like COVID, for example, wouldn't have been predictable in 2017. Right. So to, of like, course. there were racial issues that occurred then racial issues that occurred in 2020, sort of from a different perspective. Right. We don't know what the primary things 
um, that these movements will affix themselves to look like in 2023, 2024 and beyond. But I think it's very likely that we will uh, see another kind of climax point like Charlottesville or like January 6th as we um, as we approach mm. the the next presidential election. I, I think something like that's highly likely, but it's very hard to predict what it would be. And wow. again, be careful who you follow. Never forget the Proud Boys were started by Gavin McGinnis. He's a Canadian. <laughs> um, and, he, so and he's about, the co-founder of Vice Media, by the I way. I know, I know Gavin. Uh, he's a... Uh, he is a he's a not a good person. And uh, again, some things start out as a joke and they get way too serious. And next thing you know, you find yourself uh, behind bars. So be very careful uh, who you follow. Ford Fisher, thank you so much for being here, man. And the nice thing is, I guess not nice thing, but we will over these next few years again, Virginia with Yunkin. Going against McAuliffe, mm-hmm. that'll be a huge indicator into what the Republican coalition is. Obviously, Mega is going to be a part of it because you can't yeah. win without him. Uh, despite, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And then we'll see what happens in the midterms. And uh, I would especially pay attention to places like um, Virginia, Michigan, Ohio, and Arizona, where you have. Um, you know, certain cities that basically cause the state to end up being purple or even blue leaning. Um, but there are deeply, deeply conservative areas. Um, mm-hmm. I go in Wisconsin opinion, like in that the, as well. And of course, Ohio yeah. no longer a swing state, which is so sad. So the, these groups have, um, you know, sometimes had the most success, not in states that have the most cohesive support for Trump or something, but they actually have their their kind of enemies right next to them. Right. So you end up at like I was recently in like like last month in Michigan. Um where there was a re- an election integrity rally, right, that Trump, again, was telling people to be at. So, you know, that didn't turn violent. But hundreds of Trump supporters at the state capitol in Michigan, right, theoretically a blue state, but plenty of MAGA uh, to, you know, roll into the city. And so those mm-hmm. are the sorts of situations that I think we could definitely see escalate over the next couple of years again. Ford Fisher, check out everything he does. Thank you so much, Ford. Go to newstoshare.com. That's news, the number two. It ain't right. written out. <laughs> share.com news to share.com Ford Fisher. Um, thank you so much for being on the show, man. You were just wonderful. You bet. Thank you for having me. All right. There it was our conversation with Ford Fisher. I want to personally thank Travis Irvine for uh, recommending Mr. Ford. So thank you so much. Of course, Ford's the real deal. As you saw, as you could hear, um, he tries to remain as objective as he can. It's very important to what he does. I know I was trying to get him in the gotcha questions. <laughs> well, I said, got, no, Ben, I disagree he, with your premise, Ben. And I said, oh, no. It, even, and he was absolutely right. Even his Keebler elf comment, it just shows he just knows what a Keebler elf looks like because he's probably captured one on camera. Before. <laughs> <laughs> I want to connect everything together. As we were talking about before the interview and then during the interview uh, about objectivity and uh, staying objective, but also having the conversation like, you know, what Ben said, if we don't get involved in school board, then the whole school board becomes MAGA if those are the people that end up getting involved. So we have to have conversations. We have to have conversations with people we don't agree with and try and stay objective, you know, so that we don't descend into madness, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so no, like I mean, like yeah. Ben said, hopefully cooler heads prevail in school board elections and statewide. And Lord knows when we get to our federal elections, it'd be nice to have some cooler heads in D.C. 
Oh, my goodness. Um, all right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you're doing well out there. And again, Virginia, uh, just follow. We will be back. We will record after that. So the next episode, we will know what happened uh, in Virginia. Hopefully, there was no election uh, situation, but God knows. Oh, no. It seems as if these elections get longer and longer. Anyway, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you're happy and healthy and safe out there. Hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious.